Well, again, good morning. It is great to have you here. I would like you to think of something for just a minute with me. What is your favorite food? Get that in your brain. Not what you're going to have for lunch, because that will distract you today, but your favorite food. Now, stop and think back to when you were younger. For some of you, that's a little bit further back to go. For some of you, not so far. What was the fruit or vegetable that your parents made you eat because it was healthy and you hated it? What were some of those things? Brussels sprouts. Asparagus. <laughs> Canned asparagus, even better. What? Squash? Anything else? Peas? Mushrooms. Li liver. Yes. Yes. Funny story, this has nothing to do with message. My granddad loved liver and onions, and so every time we would go out to eat, he would order liver and onions, and we thought it was the most disgusting thing that sat across from us ever as we ate what we wanted to eat. All right, so how many of you, when you got older, now like what you did not like as a child? Is there anything where your taste buds changed? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. My hard no when I was a kid was canned peas. They were soft and they were mushy and it was just nasty, nasty. I do have to tell you, I did not change my mind on those. Still a hard pass, still a hard pass. But what I want to do is bring up something else for you to think about now. So in the 1950s and 60s, there was this dish that was really popular among ladies' gatherings. It was something that was in all of the cookbooks because it was desired, it was wanted, it was popular. It is something that um, I have not heard of before. So let me give you this description and see if you guys have heard of it or if you have actually eaten it before. The description that was in this book was, like all things gelatinous in the 50s and 60s, this typically was presented in an elaborately shaped mold. Canned soup or tomato juice was the base, with onions, celery, and Tabasco for some kick. It could also have in it pimento-stuffed olives, and it may be like upscaled by adding chicken salad or shrimp salad in the middle of this mold. Has this graced any of your tables ever? No. Can you bring to mind what it might even be? It's called tomato aspic. I think I'm saying it right. Tomato aspic. Does that help anybody? Okay, take a look at this picture. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That is what was desired and wanted. It was in all of the cookbooks because it apparently was good. I have no idea how, no idea how, but that is tomato aspic, and I am thankful that taste buds can change as we get older and wiser, apparently. So the longer I looked at this when I was doing my message, the worse it became, right? Like, as you're looking at it, there's new levels of disgust that just keep popping out at you. The truth of the matter is people ate this, and they thought it was good. We're looking at it judging it quite heavily, saying this is something that's not ever going to enter my palate, and yet we don't know because we've never tried it. Some aspect there that maybe we don't understand. Um, the most revolting thing that I found with it was possibly um, the pimento stuffed olives in it. 
I love pimento stuffed olives, but they just don't seem to go together. So based on the little information that we have, probably a hard pass for most of us on that. Any of you want the recipe to go home and try it this afternoon? Okay. If you get brave and you do like a truth or dare and you make it, let me know. I want to know how it goes. So welcome again this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Bickett. I am actually the student ministries pastor here at Northridge. And so I want to say good morning to you. I want to say good morning if you're joining us online. And it's great to be together in this morning where it is sunshine and beautiful weather outside. Um, what I want to talk about today is obedience. But before we get to obedience, because we don't really like that word, I want to talk about something we've been talking about in kids' church. So in the two kids' classes that are the older classes, preschool and elementary, basically K through five, we've been talking about faith. And this is our working definition that we've been working on for June and July with the kids, as you can see right here. Faith is trusting in what you can't see because of what you can see. So stop and let that ruminate in your brain for just a moment. Trusting in what you can't see because of what you can see. Take it out of the spiritual realm for a moment. Describe to your neighbor how you know there's wind. Go ahead, you're awfully quiet. Feel it. Feel it. I see some leaves moving. Anything else that we know there's wind? Can we actually see wind? No. What do we see? We can see the gusts when it moves through things. We can see particles in the wind if it picks it up, right? We can't actually see wind, but we know wind is there. How about hot? Talk to your neighbor for just a second. How do you know hot? This may be a little bit difficult, but this is what we've been talking about in kids' class, K through 5. How do we know about things that we cannot see through things that we can see? How do we know things are hot? Steam? Come on, the kids had more than this. Hit me. Things are glowing. Yes, the stove will be glowing. We had to talk about that one quite a bit. You can feel that it is hot, right? Here's where the kids went. Your body gets really hot. You do this. You can see the waves coming off of the pavement outside. Those were answers that the kids came up with. They know hot because of what they can see, not because you know what hot in and of itself is. We can't see hot. So today we're talking about faith, which we have to have before we can have obedience to Jesus. So that sets our stage. We're in a series talking about ordinary to extraordinary, and today we're going to be talking about a man named Ananias. And Ananias is known for his obedience. Now, truth be told, there's not a whole lot in the Bible about Ananias, but we do know that he was a believer who had faith. We get that much from the scriptures. Ananias may be a name that sounds a little bit familiar to you, and that's because if you were here the first week of this series, Pastor Brent talked about Paul, who was called Saul before he met Jesus. 
And a little side note, he doesn't change his name because he met Jesus. He always had two names, his Greek and his Hebrew name. So he is linked with Ananias. And that is where we are going to be talking today, is the interaction between Ananias and Saul. Now, what we know about Saul is that Saul was not a good guy. When we talk about him as Saul, we usually associate that with the bad side. When we talk about Paul, who is the same person, we usually associate it with what happens after his transformation, and that's okay. So let's talk about Saul and his not-so-goodness for a moment. Where we are going to be picking up the story, this is how Saul is acting and behaving. It's in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. Sound like someone you want to be around if you have just met Jesus and he has changed your life and you are now choosing to follow him and go against tradition and what is the norm? Probably not. I don't think he's the one that you want to have an encounter with if you have chosen to follow Jesus at this point. So what is happening here is Saul is on the hunt for any and all people who claim to follow Jesus because this is new. They think that it is not a good thing. It goes against the old traditional ways. Jesus has mixed things up, and they do not feel like this is for their benefit. So Saul is now on his way from Jerusalem to a place called Damascus. It's about 150 miles away, which is about a 6-10 to 10 day journey for them during this time. He is going to Damascus to find all of the believers who have fled Jerusalem because they were being persecuted or prosecuted, as my kids said last week. They're trying to get away from him because he is arresting them and imprisoning them. They're being hurt and tortured. And he has just, within the recent past, watched Stephen be stoned to death, who was a follower of Christ. There is a reason that all of the believers left the area, and now Saul is following them to get them and bring them back so he can continue to persecute them. On the way, he has a dramatic encounter with Jesus, which is a story that most of us associate with the Saul-Paul name. On the way, on the road, Jesus is bright, and he comes and he talks to Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul realizes that something is different. And he answers, who are you? And Jesus tells him, I am the Lord, the one you are persecuting. So by persecuting all of the believers, he is also attacking Jesus directly. During this encounter, Saul's eyes are blinded, and he has to be walked to the rest of the way into Damascus, where for three days he's blind. During those three days, he's going to hear from Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. Acts chapter 9 is where we are. After Saul has been blind for three days, we say, There's a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. He calls out his name. And Ananias answers, Yes, Lord. The Lord says, Go over to State Street to the house of Judas. There's no questioning here where Jesus is telling him to go. It's very specific go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, which is probably the street that runs through the middle of this large town. When you get there, Jesus says, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. 
I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaims Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes right now. Jesus is telling him to do something, and it makes zero sense. The man who is gathering, arresting, chasing, persecuting, imprisoning, torturing, and killing people of Jesus is who he is being told to go to intentionally. You can understand Ananias' resistance because this is a really sobering command from Jesus to go and find Saul. We feel it in his words. If you were to put your emotions into it, I'm guessing maybe some of those emotions you felt when you looked at the tomato aspect come into play here. Like, no, not touching that, not going there, that looks pretty bad, not going to do it. Listen to Jesus' response. The Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It's a simple command. And it's also one of the hardest ones we follow. Go. When it doesn't make sense, when it goes against everything that we understand to be safe and secure, go. So Jesus doesn't mince any words with him. He's letting Saul or Ananias understand what you have spoken about Saul is true. He doesn't go on to negate it. He doesn't explain it away. He just leaves it as it is. But he also lets Ananias know Saul is going to have to suffer and he will know he has to suffer for my name. Which lets Ananias know that it's going to be okay. You see, Saul was chosen for a very specific, impressive, extraordinary mission. To go out and preach the word of Jesus to all of the Gentiles who up until this point have not heard and be taught. Ananias is part of this impressive story. Verse 17, so Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Don't miss the significance of this obedient moment for Ananias. He was hesitant and he let the Lord know. And the Lord said, go. And so that's what he did. He was obedient. You see, we had to trust what he couldn't see. He had to have faith. Because it did not make any human sense to go to the man who was looking to find him and take him back to prison or kill him. Ananias' faith and his obedience leads us to two principles that we can apply to our lives today. 
The first one is this. Growth and healing happen in community. This seems a little bit strange to us because we're thinking, how on earth are we making this leap from being persecuted and tortured to growing in faith and community together? The truth of the matter is Saul could not have gotten where he was without Ananias. Ananias had to bring him into community. When Jesus commands us to love our neighbors, it doesn't mean the ones that we like and only them. It means everyone. We hear that from the time that we are little. And we think we're pretty good at it. Until you get caught off in traffic. Or until the person in front of the express line has 20 items in their cart. And we're in a hurry. Until our neighbor doesn't want to mow just up to the property line and they leave a foot of grass for us to take care of. Or they mow over the line and messes with our little pattern. Right? Have you ever watched kids outside playing? It's amazing. I was at a ball game yesterday working the concession stand, and the little kids out in front were running around with wild abandon while the parents were trying to ignore them. It was working. But kids have a way of figuring it out. They have a way of understanding that the person that they don't like can be their friend in the next five minutes if they figure out a way to say hi or do you want to go to the slide. My mom said we could go. As adults, we don't do that. We put up walls and we put up barriers because what irritates or annoys or frustrates or is different than what we choose to think or believe, we need to keep that away from us. That is the situation between Ananias and Saul, and Ananias is saying, I will obey God so that I can cross that barrier for you. If Ananias hadn't, guarantee, hadn't gone to see Saul, I guarantee you that Saul would have been in a state of confusion. He probably already was in a state of confusion. Let's admit, this was pretty drastic, what he had had encounter with Jesus. But he's been blind for three days, and he can't see. And he's been told that somebody is coming to help him see, and he's waiting for that. What happens if Ananias does not obey God and he does not go? We don't know. We can speculate because Ananias did go. You see, when Ananias showed up, he said something that was very significant. He said, Brother Saul. What this meant was that he was now part of the community of believers. Someone who was so drastically against Christians, as they would become to known, has now said, you are welcome with us. Ananias said, Brother Saul, and he pulls him into the fold. And then he lets him know that Jesus, the one you who encountered, he's clarifying, making sure he understands. This is not just something odd that happened to you. That was Jesus. We are part of this community together. He has plans for you and you need to learn. You see, with a community of believers, we're able to begin the healing process. When we build up our walls and we shut off, we are isolated. We are by ourselves. Things don't always make sense. We have theories that go through our head round and round and round that may or may not be true. We need community around us to help pull those things out 
to have truth spoken into our lives, to have things spoken about what is going on inside of our head, to let us know, yes, it is true, or no, it is not. And I think this is really true today. There's a pastor named Albert Tate who goes around and he does speaking for conferences. He also has his own church that he pastors. He is an amazing man to watch preach. He's very vibrant. He's very engaging. He has lots of energy. But he was talking to a conference of a bunch of pastors. And this is what he said to them. He said, a lot of you are showing up here. You're doing your job. You're leading people. But you're not loving people. He said that these pastors were living isolated, that they were having shrinking communities around them, that they were protecting their hearts from further hurt, they were feeling unseen and unloved, they were doing their jobs but they didn't want their hearts involved because of the massive amount of hurt and pain that had happened over the last several years. I would venture a guess that what he said to that room of pastors would apply within this room today. All of us are leading somebody, whether it is our children, our neighbors, other family members, or our friends. When we choose to follow Jesus, there are other people looking at us, and we are leading them. So my question becomes, are you doing your job, whatever your job may be, but you're not loving the people around you? Have you shut off your heart because of the pain that has happened over the last two, four, five, ten years? Because it feels like you cannot handle anything else. Have you isolated, pulled into yourself, cut yourself off from community around you because that is safe and you don't have to deal with anyone else but yourself? A lot of us are walking wounded. We don't want to risk any more hurt and so we shut off and we isolate. But then Pastor Tate went on to share a quote from C.S. Lewis that he said convicts me terribly. Listen to this heart. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, meaning your heart, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. How many of you got puppies during COVID? Imagine not giving your heart away to even your puppy. Wrap your heart carefully with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable and irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all dangers of love is hell. So if we think about that, 
in our desire to protect ourselves, our loved ones, from any more potential hurt or pain, we are actually harming ourselves. Saul was in a state of isolation for three days because he could not see. Ananias came to him, and as soon as he laid hands on him and prayed for him, the scale-like things fell from his eyes and he could see. He was called into community by being called Brother Saul, and now there is a chance for his heart to be healed and to be changed. Instead of being locked inside a coffin where it could not be touched, it is now open and receptive. Listen to what Scripture tells us can happen to our heart if we give it to Jesus. It's from Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. If we're feeling like things are not good, it may be that we have put our heart in a coffin. It may be that it's time to open it up and give it back to Jesus so that we can let love grow from it again. Saul lived a life that did not follow the way of Jesus. He was confronted by Jesus, and he was made aware of the things that he was doing and how wrong and hurtful and damaging they were. And through this chance of meeting with Ananias and having him pray for him, he realized that things could change. He realized that he did not have to stay the same because once we begin to know Jesus, we know that things begin to change. Saul knew that there was no way he could do it alone. And so that is why he joined the community. The other reason, the second reason for obedience, is the fact that it prepares us for what is next. You see, Jesus instructed Saul to go and pray. And then he instructed Ananias to go find Saul, who was praying. And both of them obeyed. As we said before, Saul would not have begun his transformation and begin to go out and preach and teach about Jesus around the world if Ananias would not have come and prayed for him. The passage does not specify why both of them received this word in a vision. But here's what I think. I think that possibly they both received it because Jesus wanted them to align with himself. I think it was really important for them to understand that they couldn't do things on their own. Because it didn't make sense. This whole situation does not make sense. And so through the vision of knowing what was to happen for both of them, they understand Jesus' heart. They understand that Jesus is calling both of them into the next steps that he has prepared for them. This experience would create a bond between them that would be unique. You know that any time you take yourself out of a normal situation and have an experience with somebody else, that it bonds you in ways that cannot be explained. There are inside stories. There are things that you know or you do. If I were to do this, the band members are going to learn what it means. The kids from camp ask them for some of their stories. Things happen when we have experiences out of the ordinary together. 
I think also what it does is it helps them recognize that no one is too far gone. It doesn't matter what we have done. It doesn't matter where we are. When we choose to follow Jesus, things change if we choose to let it change. You see, Jesus has given us really strong grip to close the bottle. I don't normally do that. Jesus has given us the ability to change through his strength and through his power. And there's only so much that we can do on our own. We can change on our own. But when we live and breathe into the power that Jesus has, it changes things. It's not ordinary. It's a little bit different. And when we choose to follow Jesus, like Ananias and Saul, we're filled to the brim. You see, obedience is important because that is where growth happens. It's important because it's also where we get prepared for what is to come next. And most of us, if we're honest, don't like the word obedience because we don't want to change. Listen to Paul's description of what this encounter was. It's a little bit different than what we just read. It's still the same story. This one's actually found in Acts chapter 22, starting with verse 12. It says, Ananias lived there in Damascus. Paul's talking about him. He obeyed the law and was respected by all of the Jews. He came and stood near me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At once I was able to see him. Then Ananias said, The God of our fathers chose you to know what he wants done. He chose you to see Jesus Christ, the one right with God, and to hear his voice. You are to tell all men what you have seen and heard. Listen to this part. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on his name. You see, Jesus told Saul that he was going to be his chosen instrument to go out and to preach to the Gentiles and the kings and to the people of Israel. He knew this was going to be coming. And then Jesus was also going to let him know how difficult it was going to be. It did not make sense, but he was obedient. When we choose to live a life of following Jesus, like Saul and Ananias, like I said, Jesus fills us to the brim. But where we get stuck today is we feel like, what if it's not enough? What if what I'm going through is too much? What if who I am is too much? It's not worth it. We sit here and think, what if I'm not worthy? My past, the things I've done, what about the hurt that I've caused other people? That's, that's definitely going to make this not work, like it's not going to work. What if I am obedient and it costs me? It costs Ananias. It cost him a whole lot. He had to risk something that he didn't understand. He had to risk being arrested taken to prison, things not going his way. But he was obedient because God told him to do it. 
It will cost us if we choose to follow Jesus. It may cost us the payment of some pain. Saul had to endure a lot of pain after he started following Jesus. It may cost us our uh, community standing if we have to change how we're living a little bit. It may um, risk some friends choosing not to be our friends if we choose to follow Jesus and do what he's asking us to do. It may cost us emotionally. It may cost us when prayers don't get answered the way that we want them to be answered. Or we have to be patient and we have to wait. There's a lot of things that don't make sense. I know there's a scientific explanation for why this works. But when we live with Jesus filled to the brim and we take all of our hurts and all of our pains and all of our anxiety and all of our concerns and all of our frustrations and all of our uncertainties and all of our what ifs, if Jesus says go, trust, he has you. Jesus can handle all of it. There is no overflow. There is no water running over the side. Jesus is not being poured out of this cup. He is dealing with every single thing we put in there. Jesus doesn't leave our side. He walks with us and he gets us through it when we are obedient to what he is asking, even when it is difficult and even when it does not make sense. I always have my husband read through my messages to give me input. And inevitably, he comes back and says, put a personal story in there. Ah, every time. Every time. So he was very kind and gracious this time. He said, you can use one of mine. I said, okay. When we tell you that Jesus can take your heart and change it and make it soft, and he can show you love. It is very true. Paul would tell you that he was a believer when he was young, but he was very hard-hearted. He kept his emotions very still and flat, and he still to this day has emotions that are very flat, which is a good thing. That's why God put us together. But over the years, I have watched this man follow Jesus and take his heart and transform it. I have watched him go from being somebody who can be the only person in a room not crying to now being the only person in a room crying because of the way a worship song is touching his heart. There are still times, most of the time, that I will outweigh him on the emotion scale. But nothing breaks my heart faster than seeing the man I love, loving God so deeply that it moves him. And as I was thinking and hearing about that this morning, God had a conviction because the other thing I told him was, I don't want to share a story this morning because I am talking about obedience and love and vulnerability and I don't want to do it. 
my heart has been a little bit hard and locked up lately. And I don't know why. And that's okay. Because Jesus meets us right where we are. And he reminds us that it's okay, that he's waiting, and he'll be with us. And as I was getting ready this morning, it was abundantly clear. My vulnerabilities right now are I'm sending a daughter to college for the first time. And if I have to admit I'm a wreck inside, I will lose it. So I don't. And she is prepared, and she is ready with her wings to fly. And this mama's heart is worried, what if I haven't done enough to prepare her? But it doesn't matter, because Jesus has her, no matter what. I had an accident exactly a year ago, a simple, silly bike accident where I was riding for the first time with my husband for the summer. And I was supposed to preach the next day. And we were going down a hill that was not even a steep hill and I hit the brake and the back end came up. And I had the split second thought, if I get my feet out, I'll be okay. I'm okay, I'm not okay. Literally that fast. I don't even know for sure what happened. All I know is I went over the handlebars and I landed and when I woke up I was trying to breathe and I thought, that hurts. The split second thought that I also had before going down was not my face before I preach, Lord. <laughs> I'm gonna scratch up my face. I didn't scratch up my face, he was very good. Very good. I did, however, break my collarbone and seven ribs. I don't know how I did it, I really don't. Literally, it was a simple, like, over the handlebar. But I broke those things, and it hurt. And the longer I sat there, and the trip to the ER was excruciating, not knowing everything that had happened. All I thought was, like, maybe my shoulder's out of place. That's what Paul had said. Maybe your shoulder's dislocated. And I was like, I hope so. And I literally was, like, call and let them know, you know, like, we need to adjust a few things tomorrow. Oh, no, we need to adjust a lot of things. <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to, to teach in the kids' class like I had thought, which was okay. Some of you may have heard me say, my face didn't scratch up, so I was blessed. It was good. God had me. The truth is, God had me with the broken bones as well. He had me. That summer took a lot of processing to realize that I was broken but I was not damaged. We throw away things that are damaged. God mends and heals things that are broken. And that was exactly where Saul was. He was broken. And God got a hold of him and got his attention. And Ananias came to bring community into his life that would help him heal and be redeemed and restored. It is possible for our hearts to be in coffins and to open it up and to close it again. The good news is that you can open it up again and Jesus is right there waiting because he wants your heart.
Let's close with prayer. Jesus, a life of obedience is hard. Sometimes things make sense and sometimes things make absolutely no sense that you ask of us. So my prayer this morning, Father, you're speaking into areas for each and every one of us where there is an ask, where there is a step of obedience that needs to be taken, where you want us to step into the thing that is hard and it doesn't make sense and humanly, we can't even figure it out. It's gonna taste like tomato aspect. But you're saying that you are right there with us and you are going to lead us and you are going to guide us. And you will walk us through the transformation of a hard, shut off heart into one that is open and receptive to you and the things you want from us. Father, help us with our obedience to be like Ananias. Even when we're doubting and we're uncertain, when you say go for whatever it is that we will go because it is part of the larger story. It is part of us connecting with other people and going out and spreading the good news of your love and your hope and your grace when we choose to follow you. Thank you for the way you love us and thank you for accepting us just as we are right here, right now. Take us to that next step with you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.